Thank you for joining us today. In this episode, prior members will recount their experiences while inside the religious group I grew up in. If you would like to learn more, share your story, or become a sponsor, please visit us at coltonconnecticut.com. You are now listening to Colton Connecticut. I was a teenage parent in the 1980s, and I was invited by a friend along with my husband to check out this church. And, um, you know, he said it was really cool and people were really loving and that they were doing some good work in the community. And he thought we would really like it. And we were in a place in our lives where we were really searching for something. You know, we were looking for meaning in life. We were looking for strength for our trials. So we we decided we'd give it a try. So that was way back in the days when the Dayspring Church of God was actually still meeting in houses, although they had purchased a, a building to meet in. And yeah, we started going there and it was kind of mind-blowing. People were so friendly and caring and giving, you know. It felt special and it really was a special church. And the other people that were going there, you know, they believed that too. They were definitely felt that God was calling this church to great things. So it felt really good. It was sort of a combination of meeting our needs to be close to God. And yet at the same time, um, we didn't recognize that it was also appealing to our egos, you know, to be part of something that was special and, and unique. And so over time, we became more and more committed. We learned that there was what they called a prophet in our midst and that it was a a woman and that she could hear the voice of God and she could give direction about God's perfect will for your life. So we wound up moving into one of the apartment buildings that the church owned and getting more and more involved. And it really began to take up more and more of our time just going to church, like church services were three times a week. They began to call more and more prayer meetings and tell us that this was part of what was unique about our church is that we weren't just praying basic prayers, but we were praying for big things, which was pulling down principalities and evil powers down from over cities and over countries. And and we, we did you know, believe it, that that was something that God would want to do and that he was giving the prophet direction for it. And then we got more committed. My husband joined the church band. And a few years later, I began to volunteer at one of the pastor's businesses. And it's like we just couldn't do enough. We wanted to be involved. We believed that our involvement was equal to like our commitment. To God. And we had yet to recognize at that time that our desire to be close to God could be exploited, that it was actually a vulnerability on our parts to really just feel like we wanted to do whatever God wanted us to do. So things sort of rolled forward. We had very close friends in the church. We had positive relationships with our pastors. And the Dayspring Church of God folded into the King's Chapel Church in Norwich. Their pastor 
went to Honduras and then to England. And so we started going to church in Norwich instead and using their church buildings. And during that period of time is when I felt an intensity begin that I hadn't recognized before. And maybe part of it was because I was getting tired. We began to feel very sleep deprived. There were more and more prayer meetings. They were all night long and we were expected to commit We might go to a prayer meeting 11 to 12 at night and then go to another one at 4 to 5 in the morning because we were told the prayer was required to remain like an unbroken chain for 24 hours. And we're all working and raising kids and and, uh, also doing a lot of other things um, in the church, running a children's church group and things like that. So we were tired. And I remember one of the first times that I, I realized, I'll call it a great discomfort, was that when I... I wasn't feeling well and it was probably because I was overtired and everything. And so I said that I needed to take a break for a couple of days from the prayer meeting. And I was told by my pastor, who I really respected and, and loved, I was told that God would give me strength and I was doubting. If God wants us to pray, then God's going to give us the strength to pray. So I pushed myself through that. And what wound up happening was I had actually been been coming down with something and I wound up with pneumonia. What wound up being sick for weeks and absolutely not being able to go to the prayer meeting. But when the pastors came to pray for me, instead of praying for me to be healed from pneumonia, they were praying that I would repent from my rebellious spirit because they told me that I didn't get pneumonia from being worn out and everything, I got pneumonia as a punishment for doubting that God could give me strength and that it was my way of trying to get out of it. So I got very confused. And that was just one of many, many things that went on after that for years where, you know, it left me confused about myself, my own motives. And I just continued to go along with it because there were times when some of what they were saying was true, where I would question myself and say, yeah, you know, how how much of a prayer warrior am I if I can't even believe for the strength to get to the prayer meeting? How am I going to believe that God's going to answer the prayers that we're praying for there? So that was just an example of the kind of manipulation that started to creep in more and more. It began with feeling like these accusations, right? I'm being told that I don't believe and this kind of things. And so I started to really feel a lot of the time, like not feeling whole or just not feeling good enough. And so my response to that, I think because of my type of personality was just to do more. So I began working full time for no pay at the pastor's business. And I was told that that was God's perfect will for me through the prophet. So I wasn't going to argue with that. And I realized that as time went on, we really begin to see more and more manipulation, more and more that type of abuse where someone is very, very nice to you. And in in a Christian setting, you know, it's like they're blessing you and they're good to you and they're giving you different types of training and just love and support. And then the next thing you know, it would just completely turn around and they could be very mean, accusing you of things that maybe you didn't do or didn't feel or say. But at the same time, they knew our weaknesses. We were all so close. So if somebody did have a weakness, let's say somebody was lazy or somebody was prideful, I mean, it was clear to all of us what each other's weaknesses were. So our weaknesses really became 
exploited. If you were a person that had a short temper or was prone to a bad attitude, you were going to get told that over and over and over again until, as they called it, you got it right. You repented. So there became in my life and in the lives of a lot of my friends and, and my family that was there, a lot of fear. So we began to be very fearful and very anxious because you never knew when you were going to get called out. So it began to be more and more controlling. And if if you didn't ask for the prophet's wisdom in making life choices, then you were less committed. You were considered less committed. You were looked down upon by some people. And there was almost a sense of competition. Like there were certain people that wouldn't consider doing anything without asking the ministry team or the prophet specifically what to do. So uh, one of the things that happened that showed more control than what even I had realized before was I had been working for the pastor's business uh, full time for no pay. And I really was doing that from my heart. I believed that it was making a difference and a lot of money from the business was going back into the church and uh, helping the the missions that we had or we thought we had in Honduras. And so I had approached him about going to college. I really felt led to go to college. I wanted to go. And I had been working at the business for no pay for quite some time. And I I felt like it was time to do something different. And I approached him about this. And so he said that he would ask the prophet about it. And I hesitated because that really wasn't what I was asking him. Going to college isn't a sin. It's not like I really needed to know whether someone else approved of me going to college. But because we were taught that the prophet could find out from God if things were his perfect will for us, why would you ever want to be out of God's perfect will if you had an opportunity to know? So I went along with that and he said that he would look for the right opportunity to talk to her about this. And so time went on and I still wasn't getting an answer. And he had told me to go ahead and register for the classes, but to just be open to what God wanted. So I said, okay. So I registered for the classes. And then at the last minute, he was able to talk with her about it. And God's answer was no. So I was devastated and because it just didn't make any sense to me. I, I didn't understand. And my response was not really positive. And so I was rebuked for being rebellious and for just wanting my own way and not really wanting God's will and very confusing for a person who really did just want to spend her life doing the right thing. And so Very soon after that, he did offer to start paying me for working there. And I went to minimum wage. And by this time, I had a lot of responsibility there. So I was working five and six days a week, eight to 10 hour days, and really just putting a lot of time and effort in there. And I had been so crushed by that episode that I really just started going through the motions for a while. I was feeling depressed and um, just just discouraged that somehow I was such a bad Christian that I didn't even know 
what God's will was for me. I actually thought God wanted me to go to college. Like, uh, what am I crazy? You know, obviously he wants me to keep working in the business. So that confusion from that constant controlling, it wasn't even just that I wanted to please God. I apparently didn't want to displease them either. I didn't want the consequences of, of displeasing them. And I didn't feel that I could be that autonomous and just make the decision to do what I wanted. And I think a lot of people looking into abusive church situations would just be like, why would they do that? Why would you go along? And you have to understand the whole background, the foundation that is laid for that abuse to happen. It's really not any different than saying in a, say, a marriage where there's abuse. Why does it happen? Um, there's a foundation that is laid before it begins to happen. And people get caught up in things that they they never thought they'd do. Once the power with the pastors and the prophet were really established, and it became clear that things were sin if they told you it was sin. I tend to be a sire. I just, you know, it's part of how I release my tension or emotion. And I was sighing and I was told that I had a bad attitude and that I was affecting everybody around me. And when you're under that type of constant scrutiny about every little thing you say or do or sigh, you can often start to feel so beaten down that you just become more and more compliant and less and less critical thinking on your part. And that's what happened to myself and to many, many people there. So as we got more caught up in the fear and having somebody else tell us what to do and it being always so unpredictable, it could just be going along fine. And next thing you know, they would just be making a mountain out of a, a molehill. And we would watch and see how others were treated. I had a friend that was gay and he was publicly humiliated in the church and made to leave. Uh, I was absolutely heartbroken. I don't even know if I really understood what gay was at that time or why it was so bad that he would have to leave. I saw another friend, she was accused of thinking very bad thoughts and wanting to hurt people and wanting to hurt her children. And the next thing we knew, she was gone from the church and couldn't see her children anymore. So as you saw those types of things happen with public rebuke, you tended to just not want to speak up and not want to say anything. And there was also some really positive payoff. I had some of the best friends you could ever have. Kind-hearted people. We worked together, both in the business and in the church. And so we didn't leave for lots of reasons. I think we didn't want to lose some of the good things we had, the camaraderie and the love for one another. I know many people who have left that church years ago and myself, and we say, we've never been able to replicate that closeness with other people. We had a bond that was really significant and we miss it at times. So we allowed ourselves to be treated badly and we watched other people be treated badly because we had been kind of fooled into it. I think there was a lot of mind control there. We were so isolated from the greater community. We were sleep deprived. And so when that happened, you just you just start to go along. Another thing that would happen that would keep us in line was many of us had come from difficult times in our life. For me, I was a tough teenager. I'd gotten myself into some trouble with drugs and things like that. And 
anytime I would question or doubt something that I was being told by the ministry, I would be told that was like turning my back on God and that if I did that, I would lose everything, that I was just going to wind up in the gutter and I needed to remember my salvation. And so it just compounded the fear. The other thing that had started happening over the years was more and more people in the church were getting divorced. And that was a real shocker to many of us. You think at a Christian church, uh, people should be staying together. But there were so many people who apparently were told that they were in sin and wouldn't do what the ministry told them to do. So the next thing you know, the spouse who's more committed is divorcing them. And sometimes over things that were just not significant enough and certainly not biblical reasons for getting a divorce. And then odder things started to happen. People in the church started marrying one another after they got divorced. So we would have a couple get divorced and then the husband would marry this other person's divorced wife and then the wife would marry somebody else's divorced husband. And it actually got hard to keep track of who was together. And I think that sort of like chaos and more confusion was very difficult on people in the church. And so you just wanted to stay really committed and really close to God, which also meant obeying them so that your family wouldn't wind up in that situation. But they were so involved in every detail of people's lives. They knew things that most people in an average world would not even tell their best friend, but our pastors would know about these things. We were expected to be very, very transparent while they were not having to be transparent about what they were doing with money. There became a lot of money issues. And so how it started to end for me after all this is I just started seeing more problems, more doubts that I had. And one of the pastors came over from England once and he he wanted to have a meeting in the church because there had been murmurings and doubt and they wanted to give everybody a chance to express what the problems were. This is how it was told to us that we could talk about what our questions and problems were and we could all talk it through. Well, what it became was those of us that stood up and asked questions, it became a public humiliation for us and it made us targets because we were now clearly the people who were doubting and were brave enough to stand up and say things like, how was money spent on things or why are money spent on things? Because the prophet was greatly benefiting from where all the money was coming in in the church. And we were asked to give to our detriment. People were, including myself and my husband, we were giving away our retirement funds, our kids' college funds. We were spending money on credit cards to purchase things that they wanted. We were going broke. So we were having times we didn't know how we were going to pay our mortgage, but we were being asked to give more and more and more. So I had questions about that. I didn't understand why the money was being spent so that her and her grandchildren could go to Walt Disney World. And we would be told is because she was under a lot of pressure as a prophet, like the whole evil of the world rested on her shoulders. When we were in sin, it would make her sick. And it was as if she was Jesus himself. She was carrying our burdens and our sins. And so they needed time away and they needed almost like reward for that. And why would I question that for all that she has done for us? So we became targets. That was a very 
difficult time, a very dark time in my life. My husband was mortified, just so embarrassed that I had been one of the people to stand up and and question things publicly. And it was not at all an opportunity to ask questions. And so soon after that, I had an experience where, and this was not uncommon at all. So I got a phone call in the middle of the night from the head pastor. And he said that the prophet was there with him and that God had told her that I was lusting after her granddaughter's husband, who I worked with. He worked with me at the business. And this wasn't the least bit true. And that is not to say I'm a perfect person. But in this particular case, there was no truth to it whatsoever. And the truth of the matter was that we had had an incident about a month before where he really came on to me very, very strongly. And I just told him no, and I wasn't interested, and I didn't tell anyone. And even when they had me on the phone accusing me of lusting after him, I didn't rat him out. And that was just the kind of person I was. I just thought, whatever his problems are, they're going to catch up to him. I'm not going to say anything. But they kept insisting, you're lusting after him. I said, no. And they said, you know, your heart is deceitful and wicked and you don't know it. Only God knows it and God is telling us this. And I was saying, no, that is not true. That is not what happened. I did not do that. I don't feel that way about him. Well, this phone call went on for hours it was almost time for me to get up in the morning by the time we got off the call. And by this time, I was so worn down. I just wanted it to stop. And to much surprise to myself, I just said, yes. I I just said, yes, that I, I guess that I, I was you know, lusting after him and I was sorry and everything. And of course, then they were just like, you know, we've been talking for hours and you should have just said so. And I was so shocked at myself that when I got off the phone with them, I went in the bathroom and threw up because I could not believe that I had just admitted to something that wasn't true, but that I doubted myself so much by that point that I just went along with it. But this was actually the beginning of the end for me because I began to think about all the stories I'd heard about people in the church being accused of terrible things. And I thought, I wonder how many of them did what I just did. Are these things even true? Are these sins even really happening in our church? Because I would think to myself often, wow. You know, I had no idea that the world and the church was so full of all these perversions and sins and everything. So it really undermined my confidence in myself. It deeply affected my relationship with God and how I was feeling about things. And so I saw that the same thing was happening to other people. People were being accused of these really odd things. And I wanted it to stop. And I became depressed and was just full of self-doubt. I felt angry because I felt like my love for God was being manipulated into obedience to them. There were so many times that I was feeling really used or taken for granted, and I was confused and everything, and I felt like I was in a prison. And yet, really, I could have left at any time. There was no 
fence around me. There was that psychological barrier and psychological manipulation that was keeping me there. I was very afraid to lose my husband, to lose my kids. I had seen this happen to other people when they had tried to leave. And so I didn't know what to do. And what wound up happening was a friend of mine who had left the church about a year before due to a horrible accusation against one of her children, I saw her just randomly and she suggested that I read this book called Twisted Scriptures. And I mentioned that book particularly because if anyone's listening to this podcast and they've experienced something similar or they think one of their loved ones is experiencing something similar, this book can be a lifesaver and it was for me. So one of the things that the book really showed me was that we were not elite and we were not unique and that people all over the world get involved in these kinds of things and that really it's an abusive church. Some people will call it a cult. That's fine too. But it opened my eyes. I knew for sure that what I thought was happening really was happening. I was not crazy. I was not sinful. I was in a spiritually abusive church and I needed to get out. I contacted the person who had given me this book and I also contacted my parents and I just began to plan my escape. And I wanted to be able to leave in a way that I could leave with my children and hopefully with my husband. And at first my husband did not listen and did not come. And then he did come. And then eventually, unfortunately, we did get divorced. A lot of that had to do with the damage that had been done during our years in the church. So once I knew for sure that things here were wrong and I got really clear about how I had been spiritually manipulated, I decided that I needed to leave. And so I did that. I don't know if I can really express to people listening what that meant for me. I had to leave my job, which is my only source of income. My husband also worked for the business. So when he left a month or so later, we lost all of our income. Really, all of my friends were in that church. I did not have any other friends, and that was intentional. I was fortunate that my parents had always kind of thought something was a little off about this church, and they were hoping that maybe this would happen at some point. So they were very willing to help me. But uh, we were going to lose everything, everything that we had spent about 20 years building. But I was ready for it. I just decided that no matter what I lost, I had to do it. As long as I didn't lose my children, I I was going to be okay. So in talking to my children, they were teenagers by this time, older teenagers, and they were more than happy to leave. They didn't want to be part of it anymore. And so we were ready to go and we did leave. And I left without any notice. I didn't tell anybody what I was going to do because I didn't want anything to happen. My son had the year before been taken to uh, or invited, I should say. He was invited to go to England where the mother church was. And I did not know that the same thing had happened to many other young people that went over there, but he was promised a wonderful trip there for Christmas. And he was very excited about going. He had a friend that was from there and got to know some of the other young people there. So he was really excited about going. And once he got there, he was there for about two weeks and I got a phone call saying that he was in sin, full of sin, and he was going to have to be sent home early and that we were going to have to pay to have his plane ticket changed. We didn't have any money, so that was a real hardship for us. 
And they just said, he's very rebellious, full of sin. And I was like, well, he's a teenager and just have to give him time. Then it progressed over the next week. By the time we got him home, they were telling us that he was full of demons and that he wasn't even going to be allowed to go to church anymore, which of course was fine with him. So he was really just behaving like a typical teenager, but they did not like his defiance and his questions and things. And so when he came home, he was a completely different young man. So here I had sent my son to England for what I thought was a blessing for him to have a nice Christmas time with his friends. He comes home just angry and dark. And I said, what happened? And he said that I wouldn't believe him even if he told me and that I was going to take their side and nobody cares about him and things like that. So I said, well, please tell me what happened. So he told me that he was hanging out with the teenagers. They're just doing teenage stuff, just hanging out. They weren't doing anything like illegal or drugs or anything like that. But he was called into the prophet's living room and they said that he had been lusting after one of her granddaughters. And he said, well, yeah, we're kind of dating. Like we really like each other, you know? And she said, no, you can't do that. And he was just like, you can't tell people what to do. You're always telling people what to do. And what I'm doing isn't wrong. I just like her. And it escalated to a bigger deal. And he told me that he was put upstairs in one of the bedrooms and that the door was locked from the outside. And that he was not allowed to come out of the room. And they told him he could stay in there till he repented, which he would not do. He said, I'm not doing anything wrong and there's nothing to repent of. And I'm just, I'm not going to give in to this. I've heard about you guys doing this to other people and I'm just not doing it. So I guess after almost two days, um, the prophet went into the room and asked him if he had repented. And he said, no. And she had a Bible in her hands and he said she threw the Bible at his head and hit him in the head with the Bible and was swearing at him. And so, of course, when he was telling me this story this year before we left, I I both believed him and didn't believe him. It's like I just didn't want to believe it, and yet I knew that it was true. So by the time my friend came and gave me that book, it was like it all just sort of opened up for me. So we left. A significant thing that I want to say to people is there's hope for those who have experienced spiritual abuse. There's lots of professionals and organizations out there that have a really clear understanding of this type of mind control and the resulting post-traumatic stress, and they're available to help. If you're in the situation still, or if you've left a situation and you just feel stuck and you're you're not moving forward in your life, focus on healing and focus on rebuilding your life, rebuilding relationships, creating a new healthy life. And part of that comes from reading about other people who have experienced this, listening to podcasts like this, talking to others, and then allowing the process of healing to happen. And it takes being kind to yourself. And being kind to yourself might be allowing yourself time to heal. It might be going to therapy. It might be doing really good things for self-care that you haven't been able to do for a lot of years. Do whatever it takes and don't give up because there is life after this type of abuse. And 
people need to hear your story so that they can also be healed and move forward. It's amazing how resilient human beings are. This is the way God made us. We are resilient. We're able to recover when these things happen. We're able to find joy in life again and heal things in our families. And it can take years and years and years. And I know people who've been out of King's Chapel for 20 years and their families are still healing, but they are healing. join us for a special bonus segment where each contributor will share what they remember and can tell us about Syro. What I remember about her is I met her many times. She never really talked to me much. I would maybe be in the same room with her or I would be asked to go to the store and buy something for her and I would bring it over and give it to her. She never really gave me much of the time of day, but I did meet her several times. Sometimes she would come to the pastor's business and not get out of the van. And that's how she would supposedly get a reading on what was going on. It was never a good experience to know that she was coming or see that she was there because most of us that work there that, you know, were part of the church, we were going to get told something we were doing wrong. The sales weren't high enough because so-and-so has a bad attitude and that sale fell through because this person has some sort of sin. It was not a good experience. And so a lot of times when she would come in the van, all the Christian people would go out to the van to say hello to her. And I remember one time towards the end when I was not believing so much anymore, she came and I didn't go outside. And that became the whole reason why everything was wrong, because I was rebellious and not grateful and all of that. But I didn't go outside to say hello to her. There were times where she would be on the other end of the phone, like a pastor would call me and she would be in the room with them, telling them what to say to me. So she didn't often speak directly to people in the church. Unless she was already close to them, usually she would speak through someone else. Like that whole accusation about me wanting to be with her granddaughter's husband. Or there was another time when I was called over to a different pastor's house and he was talking to her on the phone while she was telling him all the things that were wrong with me. You know, So I remember one day I'd worked 10 hours and I got a call being asked to go pick some things up for her. She was going to be leaving to go back to England and she needed these Tommy Hilfiger shirts and these certain track suits. And she wanted me to go pick them up. And the pastor said to me, well, it'll probably run you about $500. So I said, well, I don't have $500. I mean, you're going to reimburse me when I get there. And he said, well, this would be a gift from you. And I said, I don't have that kind of money. He said, well, you could put it on a credit card. And I said, we don't have any room on our credit cards. Like we really just gave everything we had. And I said, I don't, I don't have money on a credit card. I don't have cash. So he told me that I could take the money out of the cash drawer at the business and that he would have to take care of it because clearly I wasn't in faith to be able to do that. <laughs> I remember thinking, I am so confused. You literally expect me to just go buy all this stuff for her with my own money. But see, with other church members, they could call and ask and the people would just go do it and put it on their credit card. In this case, they needed me to go do it. I was close to the mall where they wanted it. So I went and got this stuff and then I brought it to drop it off. 
And then I got interrogated about what else I did while I was at the mall. And I said, well, what do you mean? What else did I do? I just went and got the stuff. And they're like, well, where did you go? What did you do? I said, well, I had just worked 10 hours and I didn't have dinner. So I had like $1.25 in my purse. I went to the pretzel place, you know, where they have those big pretzels at the mall. And I bought a pretzel. Is that what you're talking about? And it went on for almost an hour. Well, what did you do when you were at the mall? I said, that's all I did. I was like, I don't know what they thought I did or I don't know. I remember being asked to go to the local pharmacy and pick up a prescription for her. We had a pharmacist who was a church member. And somehow when she was in the United States, she could get prescriptions filled from him at the pharmacy. So I I always wondered if that was a legit thing or not. But when they asked me to go get the prescription, they also told me to pick up like a National Enquirer and some other magazines. And in my opinion, as a Christian, these were like the trashiest kind of magazines. But they asked me to pick those up for her. And I found out later that she would read those kind of magazines along with watching shows like Jerry Springer, all these things that are very exploitive and draw on the worst of human nature. So it always made me wonder, is that where she got some of her ideas for accusing people of perverse things because she's just filling her mind with that stuff all the time. I found that on some of the occasions when I saw her interacting with kids and teenagers, that she could be both very kind and grandmotherly. You know, she had a very grandmotherly look. And then in one second, just turn on them and be so mean. But they would tend to to mind her because they were afraid of her. She was intimidating because you were afraid that what was she going to hear from God? And so what I tried to do over the years was really distance myself to the point where people understood that I loved God and that I was committed, but that I didn't want to be too close to that inner circle. Thank you for listening to Colton, Connecticut, as I explore, investigate, and learn more about the religious group I grew up in, located in Norwich, Connecticut, and Mansfield Woodhouse, England, formerly known as Dayspring, King's Chapel, Bethel, Peniel, and the International Church. <laughs>